Welcome to the Ashley and Jessica cast. I started this podcast because of my love for Jessica and Ashley Simpson, but due to the support of my amazing listeners, I have been able to expand to other topics as well to feed my pop culture obsession and yours. Join me as we time travel through some of the most interesting figures in music, movies, TV, and beyond. I'm your host, Leah Russo. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Ashley and Jessica cast. This is part four of my Lindsay Lohan series, and today... It is time. We are talking about one of the most iconic movies of our generation, Mean Girls. And, you know, I really struggled with this because I was like, what else is there to say? This is one of the most talked about, quoted, written about movies ever. I mean, what can I possibly add to this conversation? But I've worked really hard on this episode more than any of the other ones, which is really saying something because I've done more research on this Lindsay series than I did throughout my whole college career, and I have a bachelor's degree, so. (laughs) The sad part is I am not joking. But anyway, if you haven't checked out parts one, two, and three, please do that because this is a whole story about Miss Teen Queen Lindsay, and I want you guys to get the full effect. So the first episode is about her childhood and the parent trap. The second episode is about her feud with Hilary Duff. The third is about the Freaky Friday and Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen era. And today is going to be the Mean Girls era. I am so excited to get into all of it with you guys. But first, I want to remind you that the Ashley and Jessica cast is on Patreon. So if you want bonus episodes, early access to episodes, ad-free content, you know the drill. Please go to patreon.com slash Ashley and Jessica cast. It is $5 a month. You can cancel anytime online. I love my community over there. So special, special thanks to my patrons. But thank you to all of you for being here. There's no other way to do this except to jump right into it. So let's go. So before Lindsay started shooting Mean Girls, she had a lot of changes going on in her life. She had just become a huge star again with the release of Freaky Friday, which was a massive, massive hit. She actually moved to Los Angeles at the age of 17, and she moved in with one of her best friends, Miss Raven Simone. Raven had already turned 18, so she was able to get the place, and Lindsay moved in with her. In future interviews, this is the time that Lindsay always cites as the time she should have listened to her mother. Her mother wanted her to continue living in New York, which is where Lindsay's from, and Lindsay's mother couldn't move to LA with her daughter because she had three other children to take care of, and they didn't want to move the whole family. Lindsay's dad was in a lot of trouble, so he couldn't move there with her either. Lindsay has stated many times that if she had lived with her mother Dina for a longer period of time, she definitely would have partied less, and she would have gotten into less trouble over time, but But like a lot of teenage girls, she wanted to be independent. She was a huge star. She was super rich. She was super gorgeous. I mean, she was living it up. Like she wanted to go out and have a good time. And, you know, you really can't blame her, especially because she was so focused on work and she was making these incredible movies and doing really well. I'm sure 
there were a lot of yes people around her, you know, that were telling her she can do whatever she wants because, hey, she's continuing to bring the money in. She's getting more and more fame. And Lindsay has since said that there were a lot of hangers on around her. Remember the last episode I was talking about the advice Jamie Lee Curtis gave her, which was let go of all these hangers on. Well, they were hanging on around this time. So in 2003, Lindsay actually read the first draft of the Mean Girls script and she started pursuing the role of Regina. Mean Girls was written by Tina Fey from Saturday Night Live. I read the script before um, really anyone had read it and then I went to SNL one night and uh, I was there with like my publicist and someone else and some of my friends or whatever and she was like you should go and tell Tina that you read the script and I was like no I don't want to I'm kind of scared I don't want to like be weird or anything and she was like no go tell her so I went up to her and I was like I just read your script and she was like oh my god you did and she was like really flattered I guess and I was like I was such a big fan of hers. Tina considered Lindsay a very very strong contender for the role because she was very impressed with her performance in Freaky Friday. Lauren Michaels the producer of SNL who was also producing the film loved both Freaky Friday and The Parent Trap. He actually later said that even if Lindsay hadn't been in a film he was producing he still would have asked her to come on and host SNL because she clearly had such strong comedy skills. The director attached to the project was Mark Waters who had just directed Lindsay and Freaky Friday. So obviously he was a very big fan of hers and was rooting for her to get the role. He felt she was an obvious shoe-in, but no one involved with the production really believed her in the role of Regina. She auditioned for the role of Regina, who is the most popular girl in school, the head cheerleader. She's just, just an evil person, just a kind of a bitch to everybody. She said, Mommy, I'm always the good girl. I want to play the mean girl. The director and the producers didn't believe her as being the meanest girl in high school, so they gave her the role of Katie. So we satisfied her because that was the lead in the movie. So instead, she was given the lead role of Katie Heron, of course. In 2020, there was a Mean Girls reunion with most of the cast hosted by Katie Couric that took place over Zoom. And here's what Lindsay had to say about getting the role of Katie. I really wanted to play Regina because I had just done a movie, Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, where I was kind of like a weirdo in it. And I was like, oh, I, but I want to do a movie where I get to be pretty and dress pretty. And, and, I, and the more that I kind of read the script over and over, I started to really relate to Katie um, and, you know, her sensitivity and, and just kind of, you know, the trapeze of emotions that she goes through and everything that she explores through the character, she kind of is going to a new school and it was almost like me. I mean, during the process of filming for me after in between the movie I'd done before and Mean Girls, I'd gone back to regular school and it was a really weird transition for me then. Um, and I was kind of like an outcast. So I really related to it when I went into playing Katie. There's been a lot of talk over the years about what makes Mean Girls so fantastic. You know, there's just endless articles analyzing what is so great about it? What's so funny about it? What is so realistic and relatable about it? What is it that makes this movie stand out from every other teen movie of this era? And really, it stands out from 
most teen movies in existence, right? I mean, I feel like there's many notable teen movies from each decade and Mean Girls is by far one of the most culturally relevant, if not the most culturally relevant ones. And when you ask yourself, well, what is it that you love so much about this movie? Like, what is so great about it? I honestly think that... The main factor is that it was written by two women about women, right? Like there are a few male characters who are wonderful, but it's really about these four young teenage girls and what American high school life is like. And I think a lot of these teen movies have been written by men historically. I mean, some of the greatest teen movies, very well known, written by John Hughes. The Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles. It's very rare that a man can write so accurately about a female experience. You know what I mean? And of course there are blind spots in those movies as well. And I think that those blind spots don't exist in Mean Girls because it's written by a woman, the brilliant, the genius, Tina Fey. And she based her screenplay on a book, a nonfiction book called Queen Bees and Wannabes, Helping Your Daughter Survive Clicks, Gossip, Boyfriends, and Other Realities of Adolescence. Now, this book is by Rosalind Wiseman, and she is such an interesting human being. She actually grew up in Washington, D.C., moved to L.A. for college. She started studying martial arts and ended up earning a second degree black belt in karate. She got her degree in political science. So at the same time she was studying political science in college, she was rising up the ranks in karate. After graduating, she started teaching martial arts to young women in Washington, D.C. And based on the relationships that she started forming with these young women and really listening to them, hearing them out on various questions they had about life and social issues they faced and watching them become empowered by doing karate, she was inspired to start working with young people in leadership building and youth empowerment And she wrote this book after spending over 10 years talking with girls about complex social issues that they face, including boys, cliques, gossip, social hierarchy, and self-image. So her book gives parents suggestions on how they can better understand what their children are going through during this absolutely crazy landmark moment in their lives, which is high school and help them navigate the social atmosphere of what she refers to as girl world, which of course is in the movie as well. Girls get these messages about what girl world is clearly from the culture, right? I mean, of course they're, you know, reading magazines and watching TV and yes, there are images about girls that are really a problem, absolutely. But what I think the missing piece is, is that girls take those, that information, those messages, and they take those rules and they are the enforcers on a day-to-day basis. And what girls do is that sometimes um, they don't know exactly what the rules are, right? I mean, in the movie, there are scenes where you'll see girls say, well, these are the rules, right? You cannot wear this on Friday and you can't this on Monday. And you can only wear your hair in a ponytail once a week. So I guess you pick today. But for the most part, girls don't really know what the rules are until they break them. And when they break them, they are very clear about what those rules are. (laughs) 
from that, I really decided to go to the root causes of why girls were getting themselves vulnerable to really scary situations. You know, why? Why was it so important to have a boyfriend, no matter how he treated you? Why was it so important to put up with your friends, no matter how badly they treated you? Was there a connection between the two? Uh, why is it so important? Why do girls do this thing where they pretend that they're really fat or they're really stupid or they're not good at things when they know that they are? Why do girls on sort of the opposite end sort of front that they've got it all together and they've got their game on, but and, and in fact, they really don't think that at all? You know, where, what is that about? This book became a New York Times bestseller and Tina Fey ended up reading it. It was published in 2002 and Mean Girls came out in 2004. So this book was actually really brilliant to the point where a lot of people in Hollywood were pursuing Rosalind. And she said that it was like very cheesy the way that they would call her and they'd be like, Rosalind, do we have a proposition for you? This movie is going to be great. Like they were just very... Hollywoody fake about it like you could tell that they were in it to make some cheesy teen movie make money and then move on she said no to all of them because she wasn't in this for the money she didn't obviously like speaking to young girls about their empowerment and navigating social issues like she wasn't in that to become a millionaire <laughs> like this was something that was really close to her heart so she turned down all these big Hollywood offers that were coming in immediately and the very interesting thing is that this woman is so brilliant and talented and, and thoughtful in her work with young people that a lot of these companies and these production companies and um, agents writers producers they actually wanted to buy not only the rights to her book but they wanted to buy her life rights because they thought her life was so interesting that they wanted to adapt like her her life story into a movie so that was possibly one of the angles that other studios uh, were going for like they would put her in the center of the movie and build the teenage issues around her life story as well very interesting but Tina Fey came at her <laughs> at a more like human level and a more normal level and just basically like talk to her about how interesting she found her book and Rosalind was like okay this is the kind of lady that I can work with like this is a normal person who wants to adapt this book into something really special not someone who's just gonna put like the hottest young teen star on the poster and call it a day like this is actually a very intelligent woman who is going to turn this into an actually really, really great movie. So Rosalind was obviously very, very wise. I mean, it's, you know, her name is Wiseman. So <laughs> I'm glad she lives up to her name because that would be embarrassing if she didn't. And starts working with Tina Fey to develop this movie alongside Lorne Michaels and Mark Waters. Then Tina Fey realizes that she kind of backed herself into a corner acting so quickly, buying the rights to this book and committing to this with Lorne and everything because she's looking at this and she's like, wait, this is a nonfiction book. There's not a story here. This is like a book of tips on how to be a good parent to a teenage girl. I have to turn this into a narrative film with a storyline. What the hell am I going to write about? And Tina actually took some of her real life experiences and put them into the movie. There was a group, when I was in high school, there was definitely a group of people that you just knew everything about them and you knew who they were dating and they were a soap opera and you would maybe never even have had said a word to them, but you kind of knew like, she's got bangs, maybe I should get bangs. It's just celebrity culture shrunk down to high school size. There's always those kind of 
kind of girls in your school that just seem to, it seems like, like they have some kind of guidebook of how to look good that you don't have. She even had a friend that was just like Damien. So um, the actor who plays Damien, Daniel Franzes, he actually has st- stated before that he was amazed by the script of Mean Girls because Damien was this heavy set gay kid and his head wasn't being shoved into a locker or a toilet bowl. You know, he wasn't being bullied the whole movie. That's not what it's about. He was just a normal like gay kid who was able to exist in school and That was really powerful to him. And Tina said that she would never have left out that character because she grew up with a male gay friend as well who, you know, was just existing in his life. Like not every gay character in cinema has to be like the whole focus of the movie and has to be this joke the whole time, right? Like his character is funny, but it's not... It's we're laughing with him, not at him. You know, Danny DeVito, I love your work. It's it's so good. It's brilliant. So that was based on her friend. A lot of the names in the screenplay are based on real people, including Glenn Coco. Yes, Glenn Coco is a real person. Can you imagine? <laughs> That's like, you know, Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson are two of the most common names. <laughs> in the world and I always thought like that must be so funny to go through to be like hi I'm Michael Jackson it's like what I mean anytime anyone meets you they're thinking about this other person who's this icon and I feel like that that's what it's like to be named Glenn Coco like imagine you go to school with Tina Fey and you see oh she's on SNL she's become famous good for her like you know very cool and and suddenly your name is like one of the most recognizable names in cinema history so funny the film went into production in the fall of 2003 and here is a clip of everyone just raving about Lindsay. you're gonna hear tina fey lauren michaels mark waters and Lacey chabert who plays gretchen Lindsay's so great playing katie and she's so wonderful to watch and so charming and you just you <laughs> like her instantly hey. action, action. <laughs> Lindsay gives you this giant advantage in casting that the audience already likes her. What Lindsay brings to it is her strength. The big danger with the role of Katie is to have a wallflower who's kind of shy and wilting and can get chewed up and spit out. And the thing that Lindsay brings is that even when she's in a supposedly passive mode, she's so alive and so strong that you always feel like she's a very formidable contender. Lindsay, she not only sort of understood the script, but she, I think in, in a certain way, Tina instantly trusted her judgment about what was right and what sounded right in in the characters. I think that she brings both the element of kind of innocence and, you know, a sense of knowing and maturity to the role. That's, That's really good for it. In a recent retrospective article, Tina Fey said of Lindsay, she never paraphrased a sentence once, says Tina. She has this really quick to memorize, spongy mind that you cannot have when you're 17. Between takes, she would be talking to me and Amy Poehler, At the time, it was, oh, I've got to find these baby blue Ugg boots online, which was obviously a few years ago because I knew I know she wouldn't wear them now. And then they would say they were ready to shoot and she would just turn and be fully present and really good in the scene. Then Mark Waters would call cut and she'd be like, anyway, I saw this thing online. So that is something that a lot of people have said about Lindsay. She just has an incredible memory and it's just one of those very natural things. And I mean, her mother Dina said that she did 60 television commercials before The Parent Trap. So like that is a skill that she must have honed at a very, very young age. 
The director, Mark Waters, said that Lindsay was really shy when she was acting with Rachel McAdams, who was a newcomer at the time, but was older than Lindsay. And she was just so powerful. I mean, I think we can all agree that her performance as Regina George is one of the greatest performances ever. Mark said she'd come into the room and not talk to Lindsay. She was very focused. Lindsay kind of got nervous around her. And I thought that more than anything was going to be the deciding factor. The fact that she affected Lindsay in that way. So it was very realistic, right? It was kind of method without being, you know, the super annoying method acting (laughs) that so many actors talk about. So I could totally see, you know, gorgeous, tall, intimidating Rachel McAdams walking into the room in her full Regina George wig and, you know, the little bit dramatic shirt and all of that. And Lindsay being like, ah, oh my gosh, (laughs) you know, even somebody, a superstar like Lindsay does get a little nervous and shy sometimes. And when Rachel heard this, she said, if anything, I was in awe of her talent I looked at her as this experienced actor and she had great comedic timing, so natural. She said that it was surprising to hear that Lindsay would be intimidated by her at all, being that this was only like one of her first movies. And she said, it's just funny to hear that because you never know what people are thinking. We all try to act like we've got it together. So true. Rajiv Surendra, who plays uh, the legend, Kevin G., still love him he has some of the best lines of this whole movie honestly he really does damn africa what happened he actually said about Lindsay. over the years the one question i'm asked the most is if Lindsay is nice she is and was she was one of the youngest people on set at 16 years old so she had to be tutored have a chaperone and had restricted working hours she was very well respected for being professional and was capable of doing excellent work she and i have kept in touch we hang out when she comes back to new york i really love her i feel very badly that the pressures of the industry affected her in such a negative way we've both had very different lives since the movie came out but essentially she is the same great person that I met when we were both kids. What a lovely person he seems like. I mean, what a nice thing to say about her. While Lindsay was promoting Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen in February 2004, she already had started to talk about Mean Girls a little bit because Mean Girls was coming out in April. I mean, Lindsay was busy around this time. Like, she had a lot to do. (laughs) She was always on to the next thing, promoting the next thing. She barely had a second to breathe, it seems like. She said of Mean Girls, It's a cool script. It's a little bit more mature than Drama Queen. I don't think I'd let my younger sister see it. Wow. It's a step up. It's kind of a dark comedy. Not ridiculously inappropriate or anything, but more like SNL comedy. I had a great time, and the best thing that's come out of it is being able to host SNL on May 1st. We have really funny skits relating to the Hillary Duff feud. Then they followed up with, So do you play a mean girl or a nice girl? Lindsay replied, It's kind of cool. My character changes throughout the film. She starts out really innocent and goes into the school and falls into the wrong crowd, trying to take one of the mean girls down. But she becomes the mean girl and loses her sense of who she is then her friends bring her back to being grounded it's hysterical but if you do have a click of really mean girls in your school it shows how you can handle them honestly that was one of the most relatable aspects of the movie to me I don't know about you guys but not so much high school for me it was more junior high and like a middle school I oh my god I was obsessed with a lot of the themes that are in this movie but in real life I completely remember that vibe of being friends with a group of girls one day 
and the next day suddenly you walk in and you're hated and you don't know why but suddenly one of the girls like the queen bee the regina has decided that you are no longer cool and you get no warning of it and you don't know what you did you don't know what happened or maybe you have an inkling because of some small awkward moment that happened and you're like wait is that why I'm getting kicked out of the group? And then you obsess over it and obsess over it and obsess over it when really it's probably because one of the girls is like threatened by you or something like that. But of course you don't have that insight at the time. So you just are wondering why everybody hates you and you're panicking because you're no longer part of the cool group and where will you sit at lunch and what will you do? Like I completely had that type of experience. I was like definitely, I was an artsy kid. I was offbeat and different. I was obsessed with movies and TV and theater and performing and Broadway and acting and everything like that I would sing in a lot of the shows at school and around town so I was known for being like a performer and I was really heavily bullied for that it kind of felt like half the school loved me and thought it was so cool that I did that kind of stuff and half the school would just torture me for it like it was horrible and I had my core group of friends and those were real friends like there was no oh you're kicked out of the group now there were no rules or anything like that But I would kind of cycle in and out of different groups. Like I was lucky because I always had my core friends. But then I, I went into the popular groups in and out very quickly. Like I would be in the popular group for like a very short period of time. And then I would be out and I had no idea why. And maybe there wasn't even a reason. You know what I mean? Like it's how do you how do you know? And it's so funny because I still remember the names of of the Regina George at my school and the Gretchen and the Karen like I remember that all so clearly I remember exactly what they looked like and how they dressed and how they treated me and the mean things that they used to say and how they used to try to keep me and others down like I remember it like it was yesterday so when I watched this movie and I was the perfect age to watch I think I was like five years younger than the girls in the school when like the girl the main the mean girls in the movie I think I was like five years younger than them at the time and it was exactly what I was going through like I actually didn't go through this in high school I went through it earlier I felt by the time we got to high school like by the time we were freshmen it was kind of like the end of mean girls when everything is cool and everybody's cool with each other I feel like that happened freshman year because at my school things were like as intense as they are in mean girls when I was in like sixth seventh eighth grade like that's when the bullying was the worst I literally had death threats like I had girls threatening to kill me that's how bad the bullying was all that kind of stuff like had to go to the principal's office and sit down and have meetings and we had like a girls after school group that we would do like I mean it was like bad like we all had to talk shit out like that's why the scene with Mrs. Norberry and um what's Tim Meadows character's name I can't remember but when they're all in the gym and she's like all right guys like come on you have to stop calling each other sluts and horrors like all that kind of stuff that actually happened to me it wasn't a meeting in the gym but I had some really really bad bad times with bullies and so we did have to sit down with like guidance counselors and the principal and teachers and stuff and like talk it out because it got so bad to the point where it was a serious issue. It was affecting us in our daily lives. And once you have death threats and stuff, it was not looking good. It was really, really hard for a while, you know, and I was very independent, though. Like I was very much like it's their problem. I'm an Aries. So I was like, it's their problem if they don't think I'm cool. Like I love myself. I'm awesome. I have my friends. I'm good. And that was really the blessing is that I did always have my friends. I never had that moment that Katie has after everything goes down when she's back in the bathroom eating alone like I never had that I always had my core friends that were the real ones but but I would shuffle in and out of these groups and 
you know, those people were never my friends. And I remember so funny, the meanest girl in school, meanest girl in school. I, I still remember everything that she said to me and did to me to a T. She tried to add me on Facebook like a few years after high school had ended. And I just deleted her friend request. I was like, okay, why would you want to be friends with me now, ho? Like, don't... <laughs> don't talk to me like I don't want to talk to you don't talk to me like I mean I don't still hold a grudge if I saw her right now I'd be like hi how are you you know I would I'm not like don't wish anything bad on her but that kind of stuff it sticks with you you know what I mean and I feel like to this day sometimes in social situations I feel like the uncool one and I and I feel like like if I walk into a into a room and everyone gets quiet I'm like oh my god they were talking about me like what what are they saying you know what I mean like that's it does stick with you and I am an adult now but it's still you know all that stuff gets to you and so I think those complexities are in this movie because you have Rosalind Wiseman who not only is a woman herself and was a teenage girl but also interviewed so many young women for 10 years before she wrote this book and then you have a genius like Tina Fey who is one of my favorite people in show business period to write a narrative script based on this book and based on her own experience as well. Rosalind will tell you that it just was so many years of parents asking her questions and saying like, could I just talk, grab you for a second? That she finally thought, I just need to write a book so that I can get my free time back. Um, answering parents' questions of how to navigate their daughters through this tricky time, which now begins in like third grade sometimes and, and sometimes doesn't end until you're 60, depending on your personality, right? You don't know how to, to relax and trust other women until you, until you do. And for some people, it goes their whole life. Um, and so the, the book at its core is a, meant to have a positive message. The movie from Jump, we always said we wanted it to be not just camp about people being villainous to each other, but also to kind of give a point of relief of like, oh, if we can recognize this behavior and kind of find jokes about it, it will just help us like get past it. It'll help us name it, you know, um, see the ridiculousness in it. And so I do hope that people think of it as, as it's, not, um, it, it's not just camp. It's not just people being like, feisty to each other. These people, these characters are, we try to present them as real people and, and show that like even the person who's in the wrong is a person and deserves the opportunity to move beyond it. I think that's why you have such a brilliant movie, especially because I think Rosalind brought a lot of the knowledge and know-how about the situation and Tina was able to bring that comedy and bring the jokes because Tina is one of the best joke writers on planet Earth. I mean, if you're a fan of 30 Rock like I am, it's not just how great she was on SNL. 30 Rock is one of my all-time favorite shows, especially like when 30 Rock was running, which was 2006 through 2013. I, that was, I was obsessed. Like me and all my comedy obsessed friends, I was going to UCB for, for later on um, during part of that time. During like the end of the 30 Rock run, I was studying at UCB, studying comedy, and I went on. I ended up, you know, becoming a company member at a theater and getting paid professionally to do improv comedy and everything. It was very impactful on me. I met both Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and like thanked them for the comedy influence. Like I was obsessed with comedy and Tina and Amy and the whole UCB, the whole scene in New York, the whole thing. Like that was my life. So the fact that there's 
a teen movie that has that brilliance, like that specific humor that Tina was able to bring to it. Like, I just think that it's just kind of the perfect concoction. And I really wish Tina would write more movies. I'm like, girl, like I need more movies from you because I mean, this is just it's so pitch perfect in every single way. And I think it hit such a nerve with people because it had that authenticity and it has also so many non sequiturs that Tina became famous for with 30 Rock. Like there's the running jokes throughout the whole movie that you continuously get, but then there's so many non sequiturs like the Danny DeVito, I love your work and things like that. Like all those one off lines are just so good. And the cast, I mean, they deliver every line perfectly, especially the main cast. I'm talking Lindsay, Rachel McAdams, Lacey Chabert, and Amanda Seyfried. Those four, they are so in their characters. It's it's just so believable. You feel like you know them. I mean, it, it just, it feels like you're back in high school with those girls. It really, really does. And every single line is delivered so perfectly. Like if you were trying to clip out this movie for somebody who had never seen it before and you were like, oh, this is the best movie. I'm going to show you a clip. You could clip out almost any like one or two minute stretch of the movie and the person would completely get it. Like it, it's so well written and so well crafted that there's just no weak moments or, or, or scenes that are unnecessary or that seem out of place. Like, it's just so, so finely crafted. And I think, I mean, I really think Tina Fey deserved an Oscar for this. I know I say that in every episode. I'm like, I'm always talking about something and I'm like, this person deserved an Oscar for this. But they, but she did. I mean, let's be honest. When you think about the cultural significance of this movie, I am pop culture obsessed and I am a movie buff. I am movie obsessed. I always think people are going to know what the hell I'm talking about at parties and they never do. Like I will quote a movie and everyone looks at me like, what is she talking about? And I'm like, ugh, these aren't my people. This isn't my tribe. But Mean Girls is one of those movies. It's kind of like Forrest Gump. It's like the Forrest Gump of teen girl movies. If you're lost in a social situation and you're like, trying to look for something to relate to these people quote mean girls because everybody knows it even people that don't watch movies have seen this movie even people who haven't seen this movie know the quotes from the movie because they are so popular mean girls is so huge that it's broken through the zeitgeist in a way where it's like you don't have to be a teenage girl to know the lines you don't have to be a film fan to know the lines you don't have to be a Tina Fey fan or a Lindsay Lohan fan or whatever you don't have to be anything to know this movie because everybody knows this movie it's just broken that ceiling and literally whenever I don't know what to say like I'll make a joke related to Mean Girls everybody laughs everybody knows it in fact the only people that don't think it's funny are people like me that are pop culture obsessed because they're like yeah we've heard that a million times like we're sick of Mean Girls at this point but I never get sick of it because it really is so damn good and it's one of those movies that I think it really deserves its space in culture. Like, I don't think that it's overrated at all. I think it's genuinely that good and that it does deserve the praise that it has gotten now for almost 20 years. How is this? Oh, my God. How is this movie almost 20 years old? I am I am aging by the day. I mean, God, we're all going to die. This is so sad. But listen, <laughs> I'm so happy that I could sit here with you, find people and, and discuss all of these things from the past that we're still so obsessed with, because this is one of those things that it's not just us that it's obsessed with Mean Girls. You know, it's so important in pop culture and it means so much to so many people. And I love anytime something is that meaningful to the world. It just it gives me this warm, fuzzy feeling inside. 
Mean Girls was released on April 30th, 2004. I'm 16, but until today, I was homeschooled. And then it was goodbye, Africa. And hello, high school. Hi, I'm Katie. I'm Janice. This is Damien. Watch out, new meat coming through. This map shows the school's central nervous system, the cafeteria. You got your cool Asians, burnouts, jocks, the greatest people you will ever meet, and the worst. So you've never been to a real school before? Shut up. Shut up. I didn't say anything. Plastics. Who are the plastics? They're teen royalty. That's Karen Smith. She is one of the dumbest girls you will ever meet. I'm kind of psychic. Really? It's like I have ESPN or something. Gretchen Wieners. She has two Fendi purses and a silver Lexus. And evil takes a human form in Regina George. She knows everything about everyone. That's why her hair is so big. It's full of secrets. We want to invite you to have lunch with us. Regina seems sweet. Get in, loser. We're going shopping. It had a budget of $17 million. It made $25 million opening weekend, which for a teen movie, incredible. It stayed at number one at the box office for five weeks, and it ended up making $130 million worldwide on a budget of seventeen. Insane. Huge success. I mean, ridiculous, right? And you have to remember, Lindsay was already coming off of Parent Trap and Freaky Friday, these two movies that were also over $100 million movies. And she was the lead of all of these and it's like, people are really starting to notice now, this is not a flash in the pan. This is somebody who can carry a film, who can play multiple roles very, very well. And they're making $100 million plus each. I mean, even Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, which wasn't a $100 million movie, still made back its budget and then some. So with this, the media attention around Lindsay at this time, I mean, with Mean Girls being such a great movie, it also just earned her this legitimacy in the business. So she was being talked about by the media all the time, but she was also being talked about by people in the industry. And everybody wanted to know what was going to be her next move. What was she going to do next? I mean, how can you top Freaky Friday, Parent Trap, and Mean Girls? Like, what a just a trifecta of awesomeness. Like, it's, it's crazy to think about that success. Mean Girls definitely put Lindsay on the map because now it's not just one successful film. We're talking three big successes. Mean Girls made her a household name. She became hot, beautiful, I'm gonna take over the world, Lindsay. After Mean Girls, there was a lot more press, a lot more tabloid. Now it gets to the level where people are watching you a lot more closely. This is like Tiger Woods level success, you know? I mean, it's so rare that somebody reaches the fame that Lindsay reached during this era. Especially an actress. I feel like now actresses do not get as big as this, you know? Like, there is no Julia Roberts of today. Like, is there, you know, is there is there like a Lindsay of today in movies? I feel like it's more music stars that become this big and this hot and this talked about. Lindsay just really reached this level of fame that very few people reach and that honestly you don't really want to reach. Like, I'm glad that it's kind of unreachable because not only is it unmanageable in the sense that once you reach this level, you can't go any higher. So you also can't stay at that level forever. So you eventually have to come down. And then when you come down, people are going to talk about how you've failed and you're this big loser. And that's just not the case. But nobody can sustain this level of fame, especially when you consider the pressure that's on you to be perfect, essentially, especially when you're a young woman. Oh my God, when you're a young woman in the business, you cannot make a single misstep or you will be tore down. Look what this world did to Britney Spears. I mean, my God, that is a lot 
for a young woman. And so people were obviously recognizing that this was happening to Lindsay and asking her about it. I think the toughest part is like, everyone's watching you 10 times closer. You're under a microscope, so it's like you have to be that much more careful. And I mean, it's good in some ways because it keeps you from doing stupid stuff. But at the same time, it's like you can't really have a private life and that's something you're giving up when you're doing this. Lindsay's little sister, Ali Lohan, was also asked about it at the time. And she said that it was so crazy. And, you know, if they were in a store, they take their zoom lenses and they would zoom into where Lindsay was trying to dress, like in the fitting room where she's trying to change. And this is her 10 year old sister saying this, who's like, you know, probably her mind is like, what is going on? There is just a level of human decency that was not shown toward these young women starlets in Hollywood. Britney is the biggest example of it, but really it extends to a lot of different celebrities. Basically any young woman that was famous around this time experienced that where it's like you're not a person anymore because you're on top of the world, because you're gorgeous and rich and successful and young. It means that you don't have a heart and you don't have a soul. Like we could just make fun of you all you want because you have all of the things in life that people aspire to have and aspire to be. So if we make fun of you and we tear you down, it doesn't matter. You're not going to care. Why would you care about what we say? You're on top of the world. But it does affect people. It does affect people. And now we know like what substances and, and things that Lindsay was turning to in order to cope with those things but at this time I don't think that she was really that heavy into it yet because first of all she just looked so ridiculously gorgeous all the time I think that was one of the main things and I talked about this in the last episode how she really just seemed to pop all of a sudden and blossom and I don't mean that in a sexual way like that her boobs got bigger or whatever because of course people were talking about that I just mean like she suddenly went from looking like a cute teen girl to like a woman and she was so radiantly stunning like I can't I mean you know it's like it's just one of those timeless moments in Hollywood where like beauty a certain level of beauty is captured and I think with Lindsay there was also a uniqueness to her beauty because redheads you know there's still not even that many famous redheads like redheads are pretty rare and she was just so uniquely gorgeous like she didn't look like anybody else she didn't look like Britney or Christina or Paris or you know she had her own look and that look was talked about a lot again I mentioned in the last episode how heavily sexualized she was it's so strange and sick the way that her body was talked about and all of that kind of thing. There were a ton of rumors about her breast implants and well I shouldn't say it that way. I don't think she had breast implants. Any woman who has real boobs can look at her boobs and know that her boobs are real. Especially because during this time I know I sound like a perv but I'm younger than Lindsay so like I was a <laughs> I was a younger girl than her like looking up to her and looking at her boobs so I guess that's less creepy than you know an older person looking up. I, I don't know it's confusing but I <laughs> I also have a large natural chest and I can tell you there were a lot of times where Lindsay was like not wearing a bra on TV and the way that they're moving around you could just tell they're not fake and the fact that so many people were talking about her fake boobs it's like the media has nothing else to talk about. It's like if a woman suddenly has some type of growth spurt and when I say a woman, she was 17. It's not like she's 25 and suddenly her boobs ballooned. Like she went, when you go from 16 to 17, that's when a lot of girls really do develop. And it's fine if she did have breast implants. I don't care. Like I would say it if, if I thought it was true. But anybody who has eyes can look at her chest and understand that she didn't have breast implants, you know? And she was being asked about this on so many television shows. Regis and Kelly are sitting there and Regis looks so uncomfortable and he's like kind of weirded out. And Kelly is saying like, 
And people are saying there's been certain enhancements. And it's just such an awkward clip because Lindsay is sitting there and she's like, uh, I'm, I'm still growing. So this is really awkward. And it's like, yeah, she is still freaking growing. Like, of course, her body's going to change. When you're that age, you're already going through so many sh- confusing experiences and your hormones are like going wild and all that kind of stuff, which is a very real thing. And to think about a microscope being on you around this time and having to like answer to people, like, I don't want to freaking answer to Kelly Ripa about my boobs. Are you kidding me? I don't know how she didn't just throw up two middle fingers and run off that stage. I would have been like, screw you guys. Like, I don't want to hear it. Lindsay and Tina Fey were on The View to promote Mean Girls together. And Elizabeth Hasselbeck was asking her, you know, you're doing all these amazing things. Like you're on the cover of this, you're on the cover of that. Lindsay was one of the 50 most beautiful people in spring 2004. They bring up that. And it's like, all these things are amazing, but how are you dealing with this? Like you're only 17. And Lindsay said, it's kind of scary because you want to live like an average 17 year old and everything, but you have to watch what you do, what you say and who you hang out with because everyone looks at you under a microscope but I have a 10 year old sister so I grew up like that everything I did she always knew she would always come up to my room and listen in I also think that it's important to not have that image that you're so perfect that people can't relate to you which a lot of my a lot of girls my age tend to do I always find that Lindsay when she wants to she gives really interesting responses to questions like this and I think that both of those were good points like you know you when you have siblings you have younger siblings they just look up to you like you hung the moon and they're always focused on every single thing that you do. And if you say something, they'll say it. If you say a phrase a lot, they'll start adopting that phrase. It's like you kind of have to watch what you do and say because you know your little sister is going to emulate it. And the comment about perfection, I also found very interesting too because there is this glossy image around celebrities, right? And there are a lot of celebrities that really try to maintain this and they don't want to let that exterior go. As time goes on, it happens less and less because now we have things like TikTok and just social media in general. So you see celebrities looking normal or whatever. But I love that Lindsay pointed out, because this is back in 2004, you know, she pointed out that like, yes, she tries to be a good girl or whatever. And she tries to like color inside the lines and, and not do anything that's going to get her negative attention. But at the same time, she's a human being and she doesn't want her fans to look at her and see this perfect angel. She wants them to see something real. And a lot of people have talked about Lindsay's appeal over the years. And even though, like, yes, she was so gorgeous and charismatic and talented and stuff, she still had something about her that was very much the girl next door. That's why she played Katie in the movie, right? That's why she didn't play Regina. Now, it's interesting because Rachel McAdams can do that relatable girl next door thing too. We've seen that from her in several movies. But I think that Rachel had the range to go into that, you know, that very mean Queen Bee headspace. And Lindsay was like America's sweetheart, your best friend. She was magnetic and beautiful and everything, but not to a point where she wasn't approachable. You could tell that she was that girl that everybody in school would just love and adore, like not the mean popular girl, but like the girl that everybody would really, really relate to. And the fact that these studios had her in their movies, like they were so lucky to have her. (laughs) They really were. She really did have something unique and special. And I think that's why I'm sitting here talking about her right now and you're and you're sitting here listening to me do it. Lindsay said that her favorite scene to film in the movie was the cat fight in the cafeteria. She said that it was different for her to film because it involved physical comedy and it was a lot of fun. She said that it was difficult for her and Rachel because they were trying really hard not to hurt each other. Of course, she's talking about the scene where Regina has found out that Katie 
has a crush on Aaron Samuels, which is not okay because that's Regina's ex-boyfriend. And Regina tells her, oh, don't worry. I'll help you get with him. I know exactly how to play it. And of course, Regina ends up stealing him back. Major, major power play. Like she has to let Katie know this is your place. You're below me. If I want him, I can have him back. He's not yours. He's mine. Katie says, you know, I know how this would be handled in the animal world. And that's when everybody goes crazy and starts attacking each other. And I love that. That really is an interesting and unique element of this movie that no other movie has done before, at least not to my knowledge. Um, definitely not a teen movie. Comparing high school to a jungle, you know what I mean, with animals. Like that actually is a very kind of deft way to describe that it's an it's a it's a very um it's a very accurate metaphor right it's like perfect and that is the clip that they used on a lot of talk shows and stuff when they were promoting this and I think it really made this movie stand out from the pack (laughs) no pun intended in 2006 Entertainment Weekly named Mean Girls the 12th best high school film of all time they said while Mean Girls is technically a comedy its depiction of girl-on-girl cattiness stings incredibly true In 2021, Marie Claire made a list of the best 2000s movie and Mean Girls was at the top of the list. So you're seeing very early on, just two years after the movie came out, it's already being ranked as one of the best movies of its kind. And then continuing up to even today, people are still ranking it on their lists. And I think it only gets more relevant over time because... Now that it's been almost 20 years since it came out, people can see, okay, it still rings true. It's still relevant. And that's pretty rare because sometimes I feel like movies definitely fade in and out of favor with audiences. And I don't even know how it happens. It's just something that you don't always see coming. Sometimes it has to do with how society is changing and growing and, and learning what is appropriate and what isn't and what's relevant and what isn't. But watching Mean Girls Back, which of course I watched it for the 100th time for this episode, it still, it, it just holds your attention so well and it still, it just has this sharp edge to it that is so uncomfortably accurate that you just can't help but be gripped by it. Even all these years later, even though I know every line and I know every joke, I still laugh. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those movies. Overall, Mean Girls has an approval rating of 84% based on 190 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. The New Yorker said, Part of the appeal of this movie is its faux naivete. It's a first-person story that's filled with the interior monologue of a smart and perceptive middle-class suburban girl who's distinguished from her classmates by the fact that she's never had classmates. She was raised in Africa and homeschooled by her zoologist parents. Through her eyes, the unexceptional appears strange and novel. It's a simple and clever conceit, but one that depends on an anchoring star who is, in effect, the Jamesian central consciousness. That's where Lohan's art is most decisively revealed. And it's why she's perfectly, irreplaceably cast in Mean Girls. The power to seem active while doing nothing is the crucial trait of classic era movie stars. It's the defining aspect of what it means to be loved by the camera. What's called charisma is nothing but the sense of a complex inner life that comes through in the time sliver of a photograph and that, in the extended stillness of the movie image, rises with a silent, wild music of conflicting dreams and desires. Woo! It's the part of acting that can't be learned and can't be trained. And Lohan, perhaps more than any actor of her generation, has it. I mean... Let's just end this podcast right there, okay? That was a that was a perfect description of her talent. 
Oh man, I don't even, I'm not even going to comment on it. Mm. Chef's kiss. They went on to say, Faye's construction of the story provides the discerning perspective and Lohan brings that perspective to life. The sense of discernment also comes from the movie's roots in actual observation. It's based on a nonfiction book, Queen Bees and Wannabes, by the youth organizer Rosalind Wiseman. And the movie is filled with situations that she describes which arose in her interviews with teenagers. But on repeated viewings... And in our home, the viewings seem countless. The pitch-perfect parsing of social syndromes betray a peculiarly hermetic sense of class. Time Out said, Faye's script captures the behind-your-back bitchiness of teenage girls and preteen girls, in my experience, and the film nails the survival of the fittest mentality that permeates high school social life. Even when it resorts to tired teen movie cliches, like the segregated cafeteria, the popular girls' slow-motion parting of the student body C, and the cuddly ending, Faye's ability to color her catty melodrama with ribald non-sequiturs, as well as Lohan's magnetic performance as the conniving Katie, help give this dissection of young female fiendishness and invigorating meanness. Invigorating is a very, very good word to use to describe this movie. It is invigorating. It's exciting. It, it has a very kinetic energy that you can't help but be won over by. I love what they, they say, like even when it resorts to tired teen movie cliches, because I think that it actually turned a lot of teen movie cliches on its back. One of the biggest examples of this for me is the whole fetch thing. So something that's very common in American teen movies is they try to make fetch happen, basically. Like teen movies have a certain slang to them, and a lot of people will start saying these words as a result of the movie being popular. And sometimes, you know, that is making fetch happen. You know, like in Clueless saying, I'm out here as if this movie is definitely inspired by Heathers, which if anyone doesn't know is a very popular 80s teen film starring Winona Ryder. That movie had some slang in it, including the word very. Instead of using very as a descriptive word, they would just say, that's so very. And then there's movies like Juno, which also very much have their own language, you know, like faux up the spout means that you're pregnant. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like things like that. Very popular in teen movies. And I love that in Tina's script, instead of trying to create that slang, she turns it on its head and has... Someone in the movie that's using the slang and trying to make fetch happen and trying to use this slang and start it in their high school. And she has Regina, who's kind of like the mouthpiece of the audience, saying, it's not going to happen. Like, we're not going to adopt this slang. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. So again, that's just a very smart element of Tina's script. Roger Ebert had to say, Mean Girls dissects high school society with a lot of observant detail, which seems to be surprisingly well-informed. The screenplay by Tina Fey is both a comic and sociological achievement, and no wonder. It's inspired not on a novel, but a nonfiction book by Rosalind Wiseman. Its full title more or less summarizes the movie. Fey's screenplay wisely uses comedy as a learning tool. Here she avoids amazing numbers of cliches that most teenage comedies cannot do without. When Katie throws a party while her parents are out of town, for example, a lot of uninvited guests do crash, yes, but amazingly they do not trash the house. Although Principal Duval, that's his name, lectures the student body about a pushing and shoving spree, he does not cancel the prom. We've already hired the DJ. <laughs> We've already paid the DJ. I will keep you here till four. Um, when Katie gets a crush on Aaron, who sits in front of her in math class, she deals with it in a reasonable way that does not involve heartbreak. Eh, I don't know about that one. That, that's not the most astute 
observation, Ebert, because I think she does have some heartbreak. But look, who am I to argue with the movie review king? When there are misunderstandings, they're understandable and not awkward contrivances manufactured for the convenience of the plot. Yes! that See, that's one of the things that makes this movie so good. I hate, does anyone else like literally loathe those misunderstandings that are usually in sitcoms, which like it's more understanding in sitcoms, but like I hate when movies bring that sitcom mentality into their screenplay and it's like, the entire plot would be solved if one person just said to the other person, hey, this is actually what I meant, or this is actually what I said, or this is actually what happened, rather than just letting the person believe something that isn't actually true. Like, it's just, oh my god, it's so frustrating. And I think that's one of the reasons why this movie seems more rooted in reality, because I think a lot of people get really lazy with their screenplays, because they've seen other successful people do these random misunderstandings that carry on the plot further, so they figure, hey, if Three's Company and Friends can do it, why can't I? Not Tina Fey, honey. She's like, I want this to seem realistic, and I love that. Ebert went on to say, In the middle of all this, Lindsay Lohan provides a center by being centered. She has a quiet self-confidence that prevents her from getting shrill and hyper like so many teenage stars. We believe her when she says that because of her years in Africa... I had never lived in a world where adults didn't trust me. She never allows the character to tilt into caricature. And for that matter, even the plastics seem real with their definitions of themselves and not like the witch heritage of some teenage movies. Will teenage audiences walk out of Mean Girls determined to break with the culture of cliques, gossip, and rules for popularity? Not a chance. That's built into high school, I think. But they may find it interesting that the geeks are more fun than the queen bees, the teachers have feelings, and that you'll be happier as yourself than anybody else. I guess the message is you have to live every day as if you might suddenly be hit by a school bus. And that's why he's Ebert. That, that's a great review. I love when he said that she has a quiet confidence that prevents her from getting shrill and hyper like so many teenage stars. That's such a great observation. Like, even though Lindsay's a Disney star, she doesn't have that annoying like Disney Channel thing. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like that vibe that's in so many Disney Channel shows where you're just like a whiny, annoying kid. Like she doesn't have that. She always had that self-assured confidence. He's so right. Even back in Parent Trap, when before she was even a teen. It's amazing. She was born to do this, people. Oh, I'm so excited for the comeback. I can't even. Which, by the way, has already started. Who saw her Vogue Life in Looks YouTube video? Oh, I love the Life in Looks. I'm so excited that this is specifically what she did because I just feel like, you know, this isn't an interview with Us Weekly. This is something more, I don't, I guess legitimate is, is the word I'm looking for. Like the fact that Vogue is recognizing her as a fashion icon, I think is huge. Go watch that video if you haven't yet because it was... Uh, so enjoyable for someone who's been thinking about Lindsay so much for the past few months it was just so satisfying to see this and she, oh, she just looks so good too it's really really amazing to see her looking so healthy and so beautiful the BBC said of Mean Girls, While the story may be fictional, the setting feels authentic. Faye clearly remembers how cruel kids can be, and the crippling desire to be cool at school, whether through jargon, dress sense, or doing someone else down. The script is witty, barbed, and crucially true. Lohan is perfectly cast as the innocent seduced by the system, while McAdams is a star in the making, giving pep to a part that could have appeared a stereotype, playing the Machiavellian blonde, 
with convincing malice and an impressive lack of actorly vanity. The pacing is slightly uneven and the conclusion a little too cozy, but even when it slips into self-help speak, there's still a splash of sarcasm. Mean Girls is far from perfect, but it has brains beneath its glossy, vacuum-packed beauty. Clueless meets Heathers. Every teenager should see it. I love how even when they're giving, you know, critiques saying, you know, it's uneven, it's far from perfect, they still say every teenager should see it. That means that it, it extends beyond any flaws that it may have. Like none of that stuff even matters. You still need to see this movie. IndieWire recently did a retrospective on Mean Girls and it says... What can be said about Mean Girls that hasn't already been said? It is the pinnacle of Lindsay's professional career and a colossal piece of writing that quickly fell into place as a generation's undisputed cinematic urtext. Every last one of us has memorized Tina Fey's quotable screenplay from top to toe, and if there is a reason why Lindsay remains such a part of our daily media diet is because Mean Girls made an indelible mark on popular culture. It was her first PG-13 film and her first departure from Disney. She got to curse, show off her cleavage, interact with grown-up SNL talent who took her seriously as a comedian, and best of all, she finally got an honest-to-God leading lady role with wit and insight for an adult audience and satire her teen fans could understand. Yeah, it was so the perfect way for her to move into a more adult space, both within the industry and in the hearts and minds of the general public. In March 2021, Richard Brody published an article in The New Yorker called The Best Movie Performances of the Century So Far, and Lindsay Lohan came in at number 11 in Mean Girls. He said, The movie's well-justified status as a classic owes much to the sharply nuanced and brilliantly epigrammatic script, but it depends equally on the blend of charisma and awkwardness, innocence and guile with which Lohan invested the lead role, and the faux casual earnestness with which she spun her dialogue. The sheer force of Lohan's personality, the enormous character that bursts even in repose from each glance and each word is the star quality that classic Hollywood actors had and that seemed to have dwindled over time as technique became valued over presence. Lohan recaptured and modernized a tradition. I hope she'll one day return to the screen and further advance it. These quotes about her, like, I, like do you guys remember how adored she was and how much of a pedestal she was put on that's why she fell so far because she was placed at such a great height and I'm so happy that it's coming back around now like everything is coming full circle and this was from 2021 like she's being written about like this again people were just so wild about her like people were in love with her and I really think this comeback is going to be huge guys get ready for it get ready for it like She's going to she's going to make another movie. I am predicting it right now. And people are going to be talking about her like this again. I guarantee it. Because people love her and they, you know, people want to see her be okay, I think. And I think she is okay. And I think she's about to show everybody that and it's so exciting. For years, Lindsay has been trying to get a Mean Girls sequel made. She has been open about the fact that she has aggressively <laughs> gone up to Tina Fey and Lorne Michaels every time she's in New York and says, please, let's do this, let's do this. During the 2020 reunion, everybody that was there basically agreed and said they would love to do it. And there is a Mean Girls 2, technically. I think it was straight to DVD. I've never seen it. I don't even know anyone who has seen it, so I don't have any comment on it, but I, I guess I've, I've heard it's not very good, so we don't really count that one. But apparently this is something that everybody 
would be interested in doing and it would be all the characters from the movie but where they are in life now and I actually at first I was like no that wouldn't work because this is so much about teen girl life and high school for American teenagers but imagine those characters now in their 30s in the corporate world or something like that. Like imagine if in all their different careers somehow crossed paths again or something like that. I mean, I don't know if it would be like career-based or, or what it would be, but I could totally see Tina writing a brilliant version of that. However, basically the whole time that Lindsay has been trying to make this happen, Tina has been extremely busy. I mean, not just with her various other projects, but Mean Girls was adapted into a Broadway musical which has unfortunately since closed but I think that was more due to the pandemic than anything because it was pretty successful and favorably reviewed so much so that it's now being adapted by Tina Fey into another movie so that's going to be really interesting to see and I just think that that is going to be huge I'm so excited it's going to be Mean Girls Mania once again and I just love that Tina has created almost an entire career based on picking up this book all these years ago that had tips for parents of teenage girls in it. And I am excited to see Lindsay's involvement moving forward. And who knows, maybe someday there will be a sequel with the original cast. There certainly is interest in it. This is one of those films that really hasn't left the zeitgeist since it entered it. And that is incredibly unique. In May 2004, Lindsay appeared on SNL hosting for her first time and this episode ended up being iconic. I talked about the monologue in episode 2 of the Lindsay series because it was very heavily based on the feud with Hillary Duff. So I'm not going to talk about that again. Go back and listen if you want to hear my thoughts on that. But I was very surprised to know that that was actually Lindsay's idea, which is amazing. I mean, she's 17. She's hosting SNL for the first time. She has these massive hit movies under her belt, and she's giving these genius writers at SNL tips on <laughs> what she wants to talk about, which I think is amazing. And Lindsay actually said that she discussed it with her girlfriends. She just kind of sat down with them and said, "What's what do you think is funny? Like, what should we talk about? And they all said, the Hillary Duff feud and this brilliant monologue with Rachel Dratch playing Hillary and Amy Poehler playing Avril and Maya Rudolph playing Whitney. I mean, brilliant. I'm not saying Lindsay like came up with the whole thing and wrote all the lines, but I think that that is awesome that she had that input and that they allowed that input, which I don't think that many 17 year olds when they host SNL are like coming up with these things, but I'm sure because Lindsay was already tight with Tina and Lauren, she kind of got to have a little bit more input in what she was doing. I watched this episode for the first time in years and what really struck me is just how good Lindsay is on it. I mean, she really has that comedic timing. She keeps up with all of the hilariously funny cast members. Even the skits that aren't as well known as some of the more famous ones, she's just so on point and so sharp in her comedic skills. I'm not surprised that they asked her to come back and host. I think she hosted, she's hosted four times in total, so... I bet you anything now that she's coming back, the comeback is happening, I think she's probably going to be in the five-timers club. So I'm really, really excited about that. Although the entire episode is worth watching, there are two skits from this that are completely iconic. The first one is the Debbie Downer, which I would say is the most well-known sketch from any time that Lindsay has hosted. And honestly, I think from this SNL era, it's one of the most popular sketches of this time. 
If you've never seen this, if you don't know what I'm talking about, please pause this podcast right now. Go type in Lindsay Lohan, Debbie Downer. It is this absolutely hilarious sketch where Rachel Dratch plays Debbie Downer, this woman who always brings up something negative, always brings up something upsetting, no matter how much fun everyone is having. She somehow always manages to mention something depressing. And in this particular version of the sketch they're all at Disney World and it's so funny Lindsay is so earnestly playing this little girl that's like so excited to be at Disney and meet the characters and go on the rides and stuff and the whole family's there it's Jimmy Fallon Horatio Sands Amy Poehler I mean they're just all so so funny in it by the way it's official I didn't say a word during It's a Small World when you talked about low birth weight or during the fireworks when you went went about about feline AIDS. It's the number one killer of domestic cats. Everyone is dying in the sketch like they're trying so hard to hold back laughter but they just can't they end up bursting out into laughter multiple times during the sketch and I don't know how you guys feel about that but I just think that makes it even funnier you know what I mean when they start laughing it just gives that impression like this is so funny that the people that already know the jokes already know the punchlines that do this every day for their career even they can't hold it together I mean it's it's hilarious and it just is one of those things again like so many things were happening in Lindsay's life she was doing so many fantastic things that it's yet another iconic moment of this time in her career like it's memorable people really really remember this whether you're a fan or not and she was just really in this magical space where it seemed like she could do no wrong every time she stuck her hand out to try to grab and reach for more she was successful the other sketch that a lot of people remember from this episode is the harry potter one which is very inappropriate, but it is funny. It, you know, it's one of those things where it's definitely towing the line of should they have done this or not. And I don't think today it would have been done because everybody is so uber sensitive today. And, you know, some of that is for very good reason. And sometimes I think people are a little too politically correct. It's like, you know, you can be a little edgy with jokes and stuff. I think people are a little too careful nowadays. But as I said, around this time, so many people were talking about Lindsay's body and how she had grown up all of a sudden it was like six months earlier she looked like more of a young teen girl and then suddenly she looked like a woman but she wasn't legally a woman yet she was 17 so it was so inappropriate that on all of these shows people were talking about did you have breast implants and very similar to what Britney had gone through just a few years earlier so she's wearing a very low-cut top In this sketch, she's playing Hermione from Harry Potter and Rachel Dratch is playing uh, Harry Potter. I'm telling you, Rachel Dratch is an all-timer. She deserves a bigger career nowadays, to be honest. She's so funny. Uh, Seth Meyers is playing Ron. And the sketch is basically like they've come back to Hogwarts after the summer and oh my god, Hermione had a growth spurt and suddenly she's looking like a woman and you know, they're her best friends and they didn't look at her this way before, but now suddenly, oh my goodness, look at her, you know. And it actually is kind of funny and relatable because I think we all had that moment in school. Like, you know, you go through school with the same people and then all of a sudden, like, 
that boy looks cute to you or what you know or, or whatever like so it, it was a good sketch and it is really really funny I can think of a, a couple things that happened, but it's just that, um, you see, it's, it's only been a, a, a few months since we, we last saw you, yet, um, <laughs> wow. Mm. Uh, Rome just means that, uh, you look very nice, Hermione. Thank you, Harry, but we have to perform this cloaking spell to protect you from Voldemort. <sighs> Protectium Invisibum. Come on, what are you waiting for? Oh, uh, um, uh. Protectium Invisibus! Are you concentrating on the spell? Uh-huh. The thing that I think is good about this sketch and makes it a little bit more appropriate is that they are framing it like Lindsay's had a growth spurt. They're not trying to act like Hermione had breast implants, which I think is better because she hadn't had implants. I mean, to me, it's so obvious, but a lot of people still think that she did, and I'm like... I just feel like a lot of the time people want to believe the most scandalous possible outcome of any scenario with a celebrity. You know, like if there's rumors that one celebrity is cheating with another celebrity, some people will be like, oh, I don't think that's true. And other people are like, are you an idiot? Of course it's true. Of course they're hooking up. Like they just go with the most salacious thing and it's just not the case. Overall, it was just a great performance on SNL. And a lot of people were talking about it at the time. Like a lot of these interviews that I was watching and reading, doing research that happened after SNL, everybody's mentioning it and telling her how great of a job she did. And it was another triumph for Lindsay. In June 2004, Lindsay hosted the MTV Movie Awards that year. She was also, of course, nominated for Freaky Friday. And once again, she was given input on what she wanted to do. Lindsay was already on to the next thing in her mind. She really wanted to take action on her singing career. And she wanted to show off also that she was a dancer and that she loved dancing. Her mother had been a dance teacher and she had been studying dance for a long time. So she really wanted to do an opening dance number. The producers of the show just wanted her to do like an opening monologue, comedic kind of thing. As I said, she had done a great job on SNL. So that was where they were angling toward. And Lindsay was like, no, I've already done that. I've already showed people I can do that. I want to do an opening dance number. And it actually kind of went with what was popular that year because You Got Served was a big movie. So she actually ended up coming out and having her parents come on stage with her, not Dina and Michael Lohan, but her comedic parents, Rachel Dratch, once again, just killing it. And Andy Richter played her dad. And they did this funny sketch where she's trying to host and they keep saying, Lindsay, don't do that or don't say that, you know, because she's only 17. People had to keep making such a big deal out of the fact that she was underage. Hey, everyone. Wow, I'm so excited. I cannot believe I'm hosting the MTV Movie Awards. This is going to be so much fun. <clears throat> oh, yeah, um, these are my parents, Donald and Judy Lohan. Hi, gang. to meet Lindsay's friends. MTV said they had to be here with me, you know, since I'm not 18 yet. She's the youngest host they've ever had. Anyway, I know this is kind of weird, but you know, they promised they wouldn't get in the way, so. Ah, uh, you kids won't even know we're here. You know, it's been such a great year for movies, from the heartwarming Finding Nemo to the kick-ass action <gasps> of- Lindsay Jean Lowen! You watch that salty language, young lady. Being on television is like being 
ass. Mom. No, apologize. Huh? I'm sorry I said the word ass. And then she decides to just do this scandalous dance number and rip off a Dolce & Gabbana suit that she was wearing and dance with Marcus Houston and Omarion, who were the stars of You Got Served. Lindsay discussed this hosting gig very recently when she did the Vogue Life in Looks YouTube video. So this is when I hosted the MTV Movie Awards. The opening didn't require me to dance. It was just supposed to be a comedy skit, but I wanted to dance. And I always think about these moments and then I wonder why I put myself through that because I learned this dance about 25 minutes before the live show. And I just remember the torture of them saying just freestyle in the middle. And then I just, I dropped it like it's hot because that was the thing then. <laughs> but I remember also this look was what Lori Rock and I was like, just give me as much jewelry as I can wear and all crosses to protect me on that stage. And I wore a Dolce & Gabbana tear-off suit, which was actually really fun to take that off. And then again, yeah, juicy. I definitely have to bring this back in the summer if I still have it. <laughs> also, I wanted to, I remember Sarah Jessica Parker, she had hosted something and I asked how many changes did she have? Cause I need to have more. <laughs> that was, so I just put everyone through hell trying to get more looks. <laughs> Christina Aguilera and Sharon Stone presented Lindsay with the award for Breakthrough Female for her role as Anna Coleman in Freaky Friday. And it was kind of weird. Like Lindsay's speech was very unremarkable. I'm not even gonna play the clip. She just like says thank you. But Christina and Sharon Stone seem to be like flirting with each other or maybe hi. I don't know if you want to check out that clip, check it out. But the thing I love about this hosting gig for Lindsay is that they did do a comedy sketch with Adam Brody and Jamie Lee Curtis mocking the famous three-way calling scene from Mean Girls where they use three-way calling to sabotage each other. I actually think this is hilarious. Hello? Hey, Lindsay, it's Adam. How are the movie awards going? Hey, it's been really fun so far. Good, great. Listen, I've been meaning to ask you something. Uh, what was it like working on Freaky Friday with Jamie Lee Curtis? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, she's so great. Hmm. So she wasn't, like, bitchy or anything? <laughs> Not at all. I mean, she's so sweet. Mm-hmm, but she wasn't even the least bit bitchy. Not really. Come on, you're telling me Jamie Lee Curtis isn't even the slightest bit bitchy some of the time. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know. Maybe once in a while. See what I'm saying, Jamie? I told you, she thinks you're a bitch. Lindsay, I can't believe you think I'm a bitch. Jamie, I, I didn't mean it like that. I mean, maybe once I snapped at you during the fortune cookie scene, but I mean, I was tired. We'd been working really long hours. I know, I know, and it wasn't your fault. It was totally the director's fault. Thanks a lot, Lindsay. Oh, nailed you again. Mark, I didn't mean to... No, it's okay. I guess you don't have to be nice to people now that you're the it girl. Oh, come on, Mark. You know that doesn't mean anything. It's just some stupid label made up by the media. <laughs> the media's on the phone, too? Oh, my God. I'm so embarrassed. So, again, this was another very big win for Lindsay. She did a great job hosting the awards. She won an award. She got to do the comedy thing, but she also got to show off her dance skills. And it was just another big moment of this year where she was just everywhere and you could not escape Lindsay. And nobody wanted to escape Lindsay. She was on the cover of Interview Magazine in June 2004, and it's that famous picture of her sitting in front of a heart, and it says, Why is everyone so in love? with Lindsay Lohan. It's a great article and one of the things that she addressed is what she wants to do with all of this fame and attention and she says, I want to act more. 
I want to really act in a film and commit to something and be a different person. I mean, the characters I've played so far are very similar to who I am, so it's hard to say that I'm actually fully acting. I want to find something that's a little bit more dramatic, something that's different from what I usually do. I don't want to give an image of doing only teen movies and just being this perfect teen. Very interesting that she said that, right? Because her next couple of movies aren't that dramatic and are still very in the vein of what she normally would do. It seems like she tried to break out of that a little bit with Georgia Rule and then really broke out of it with I Know Who Killed Me, but I think because of her personal struggles and how that affected her place in the industry, she really wasn't able to extend beyond that. And so I'm really hoping that she will be able to go to those places now with her comeback because I think... She, you know, she has this Christmas movie in the can, which obviously that's not going to be challenging anything new. That's just going to be like a Hallmark Christmas movie. So it's going to be cutesy and cheesy and stuff, which is fine. Like I love seeing that version of Lindsay, but I'm hoping that these other two Netflix movies in that deal that she just made, I'm hoping that she'll get to spread her wings and do something a little bit different because she deserves it. She's earned that. And it's just so sad for me to see 17 year old Lindsay saying this and knowing that that's not what she got to do, you know? She fell on hard times and instead her life went in this completely different direction. But at least things are good. Like if I had done this episode five years ago or something, I think I would have been like really stressed doing <laughs> this series. But now knowing how well she's doing, it like it's, it's like, okay, my anxiety is calmed. She's doing well. She's okay. On July 2nd, 2004, it finally happened. Lindsay turned 18. So maybe now everybody can stop being so gross. <laughs> about her being underage and talking about her boobs and stuff. Very annoying. Two things happened when she turned 18. One is that she finally admitted publicly that she was dating Wilmer Valderrama. They appeared hand in hand on the red carpet at her birthday party. I mean, the fact that you even at your 18th birthday party have a red carpet, like what a weird life, you know? But Lindsay and Wilmer had been dating since around February of 2004, but he was 24 years old and she was 17. Obviously, that is not great. And so... <laughs> Her team would not let her admit that she was dating him. But she had her own ways of letting everybody know that that was obviously what was happening. I mean, not only were there paparazzi photos and rumors and everybody knew it was happening, but she also had this thing, and I explained this in the last episode, where she would say that they absolutely were not dating and making it obvious that they completely were. Here's a clip of her on Ellen doing this very thing. Where is it? It's in the Us Weekly that right there called you the kissing bandit. Who are you, yeah. who are you supposedly kissing? Actually, he's 24 and I'm 17, so nothing could ever happen anyway. Uh -huh. And he's like a big brother to me. Like, he's like one of my best friends. Who Wilmer, is he? He's the guy from the 70s show, Wilmer Valderrama. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just love how she's like, yeah, nothing can obviously ever happen. I mean, he's 24, I'm 17. Like, ew, that can't happen. No way. And it's, meanwhile, she's like living at his house. I'm not going to talk that much about this relationship. I'm not going to like chronicle it or anything the way I did the Lindsay and Hillary feud. Because this is just gross to me. Like, he was too old for her. And I don't like him. I do not like Wilmer Valderrama. He's very... I you know I, I'm not crazy about him I'm gonna talk more about him in the speak section of this series which is Lindsay's debut album because there's some songs about him on there but I don't even want to get into it right now I think most of you guys know right like Wilmer Valderrama dates young girls before they turn 18 it's crazy I mean he's the epitome of you know I get older but high school girls stay the same age he's gross to me so whatever and I never thought he was that talented either like I'm sorry a lot of people could have played Fez on that 70s show very gimmicky role like what how how has he achieved so much I don't understand <laughs> he's one of those people I'm just like damn you got you got so lucky 
dude. You should be nicer to the women that you date and not talk about them on Howard Stern. The other thing that happened around this time is that Lindsay finally signed to a record label. She had a meeting with Tommy Mottola. Ugh. Tommy was absolutely thrilled with Lindsay and signed her to Casablanca Records because she already had this massive built-in fan base. He had had a ton of success when he signed Jennifer Lopez and of course we all know she was very well known already as an actress mostly for Selena but other films too and that led to her musical success. Tommy was starting to figure out it's a lot easier to sign somebody that the world already knows and loves than to develop an entirely new artist. And with Lindsay, you were starting from a much bigger place because although Jennifer Lopez was certainly very famous and successful when Tommy signed her, which I believe was in 1998, the it girl status of Lindsay in summer 2004 was just off the charts. She was a household name. Everybody loved her. Fans loved her. Critics loved her. The industry respected her. Everybody was predicting that she was going to be this even more massive successful actress as she moved into more adult roles. I mean, he really got extremely lucky with her. Lindsay's mother, Dina Lohan, said, I could have gone with any record label, but Tommy has managed artists who have become successful quickly. He's a star maker. And boy, did this whole thing move incredibly quickly. We are going to get into all the details of that in a future episode. I personally believe that Tommy and Dina are responsible for the fact that Lindsay very soon would go into the hospital for exhaustion because she was trying to make an album to get out by Christmas of that year. Now think about it. She signed in July and they were rushing to get an album out by Christmas on top of her already extremely grueling schedule. It was absolutely wild. Plus she's dating Wilmer. She's doing tons of press. It's absolutely insane. This girl's life, I swear. We are also going to talk about the Rolling Stone article on Lindsay from around this time. I'm either going to do a bonus episode on that or I'm going to include it in the next one. I'm not sure. We also have a guest coming up to discuss Lindsay's music career. I think I'm actually going to release that one next. So I will see you guys then. Thank you so much for all your support and positive messages on this series. I am absolutely loving doing it and I cannot wait to get to the next chapter. I'll see you guys next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Ashley and Jessica cast. I'm your host, Leah Russo. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Capria Moon. That's at C-A-P-R-I-A-M-O-O-N. And follow the podcast at Ashley and Jessicast on Instagram and at Ashley Jessicast on Twitter. Please let me know your thoughts on the show. I would absolutely love to hear Ashley and Jessicast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. See you next time.